I've never been as excited as I am about this uh, series uh, because, of the, because of the potential it has to deepen your understanding of a God that, that loves you and wants a relationship with you. Um, one thing you, you find when you pastor is people constantly lean on you to tell them how much God loves them and to tell them what God's saying to them. And I just believe that God wants to tell you how much he loves you and he wants you to understand what he's saying to him. And so if you'll engage in the process over the next 31 weeks, I believe that God will, will reveal himself to you in a way you've never seen him before. And this could be the most impactful uh, moment of your, uh, of your journey with him. So, all right, let's get into, let's get into to chapter one. So it's Genesis one, verse one is where the, the, the story opens. But you don't have to look around very far to see that we live in a, we live in a fallen world. You can look at the, uh, turn on the news, you can see stuff about the um, international refugee crisis with 8 million people displaced from their homes. 4 million of them are leaving their country, not to try to find a better life, but simply to survive the one that they have. And so you can see stuff like that. You see terror. We just celebrated the 14th anniversary of 9-11 when it became a very real uh, terror became much more real to us as it was on American soil. And so we, we see terror, we see evil. 21 million people each year are sold and bought in the sex, uh, sex trade industry, an industry that's fueled by lust. Uh, you can look at the, the, the problem of, of violence in America. It's become an epidemic. I could tell you stories about, uh, about that. But again, you don't, I, don't, I can't tell you anything you don't already know. If you read the paper, if you watch the news, if, if you have a phone that sends you alerts, you know and you see that we live in a fallen world. And we, we see those big pictures those big picture images of it, but we also see it on a more personal scale. Some of you in here are the product of a broken marriage. You, you've, you've seen the effects that, the choice, that someone's choice to choose self over, over surrender. You've seen the effects that that can have as your marriage is crumbled because one or both of you have chosen sin in, instead of this relationship that God has given to you. You can look around and see addictions. You can see abuse. You can see lying, cheating, stealing, all of these things that are existing in the, in the context of, of our everyday lives. And we, we look around at the world and, and sometimes we ask ourselves the question, where is God in all of this? Why would God create or allow all of this to exist? And the truth is, this isn't the world that God intended it to be. This isn't what God intended when he created. Now God is all knowing and he knew that it would get here. But when God created this earth, this was not the plan. This was not, the, this was not his intention. He didn't say, I'm going to design a world that's going to be ruled by chaos and unrest and sin and, and, and self. He created a world for us to habitate so that we could pursue a relationship with him. When the, when the Bible opens, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, God, God existed before anything that you see around you came into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the, darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You see in creation the presence of the Trinity, God the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. In John chapter, chapter one, it says that Jesus existed in the beginning with God and he was God. So we see the, the presence of, of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all existing and taking part in the creation process. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then it goes on and records the, the days of creation. Day one, it was, uh, it was God creating the heavens and the earth in light and darkness. Day two was sky and water. Day three was, was land. 
And then day four, five, and six, God spent those days populating the places that he had created on days one through three. Day four, it was the sun, the moon, and the stars. God spoke all of this into existence. In the book of Psalms, it says, God spoke and stars came into existence. They came into, into being. God with his mouth simply, simply said, said the words, you know, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be stars, and there were stars, and he, and he placed them where he wanted them to be. Day five was, was the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Day six was animals, and then day six is also when he created man, when he created human beings. Day one through five was spent creating a world that we could survive in. You see, the, there's a reason God waited till day six to create man. And I think one of the reasons God waited till day six to create man was he was, was, he was doing stuff in a systematic, structured, and ordered way. We couldn't have lived day one through four. We needed what God created and spoke into existence days one through five in order for this earth to sustain life. On day four, God created the sun. We can't exist without the sun. We get 99% of our energy from the sun. The, the sun is 93 million miles away from the earth. Uh, we know that if it were any closer, we would all burn up. If it was any further away, we would all freeze to death. There would be no life on planet earth. And God was creating in a systematic, ordered way. A lot of times when we think of, of, of creation, it's as if God is just sort of doing this arbitrary magic trick. And he's like, hey, let's create, uh, how about this? How about that? No, there's a structured and ordered process. God was creating a world for us to live in, for us, for mankind to, to rule over. God didn't create you for this earth. God created this earth for us. God created this earth as a place for man to live. And then he says, after he's created all of these things, when he creates man in Genesis 1.26, it says, then God said, let us, notice the plural, that's the, the Trinity, let us together make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Notice what he says that they'll do so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Society and science would tell us that we're animals, but the truth of the matter is, I don't care what science says, we are not animals. We were created to rule over the animals that God created. We were God's special and best creation. We are the reason that God created everything else. Nothing else can lay claim to the statement that I was created in the image of God. The breath of life comes from the very breath of God. God creates. And when God creates, it's always good. And we see this theme running through, through chapter one. And I'll tell you, it's running through the Bible and it's still running through our lives today. And that is this. God creates. And remember this, when God creates something, it's always good. So God creates. Through our sin, everything crumbles. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Through our sin, everything crumbles, but God always gives hope. So God creates. Through our sin, everything crumbles, but God gives hope. So God creates this environment. He creates the, the, this perfect place for, for his creation, for man to live. And he creates man with the idea that we'll have a relationship with him. He created us for him to love us and for us to love and need and desire closeness with him. And then he takes this man and he places him in the garden. In Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God creates this, this unbelievable paradise. And in this unbelievable paradise is, is this, it talks about the two trees, the tree of life, which prior to eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they could eat as much of the tree of life as they wanted to. 
but there's this tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. And God places it somewhere in the garden and says, you have access to everything. There is nothing in here that I'm holding, holding you back from. You can eat from, from any one of the trees you want as much as you want. There's only one rule. You can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's been debate for centuries about what the fruit was. Like some people have said it was the apple. I've got a theory, right? And since I'm talking, you get to listen to my theory. I think the fruit was an avocado. Because here's what I've come to understand about pe people who like avocado don't really love Jesus very much or Jesus very well. So I, so I picture this setting, right? I picture this setting in, in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. And so if I'm there and it's an avocado tree, I'm like, God, no problem, right? I, I will gladly leave that, leave that one alone. Now, if it was bacon, whole nother story, right? I'd have been like, I know the consequences. I'm eating it anyway. Um, but, but so there's this avocado tree, the, the avocado tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat it, you'll die. And so God tells them the consequences. He's like, you know, the consequences are that's going to become guacamole, which is even worse than avocado. So, so God tells them, don't eat from the tree. And you know what's amazing about it? Think about this for a second. What's amazing about it is God said, don't. And then he said, this is what's going to happen if you do. The consequences were laid out. They were crystal clear for them. And when we think about this, this story, we look back at it and, 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 we, and, and we look at it from, this, from our end of the perspective. We think, man, God told you not to eat it. And he also told you what was going to happen. And then the story goes on in chapter three, Satan comes and appears to Adam and Eve in the, the form of a serpent. And he begins to challenge that one command and he begins to cast doubt and say, say things like, did God really say that? Maybe, the, maybe God's threatened, right? Maybe God thinks that if you eat it, you're gonna know what he knows. Maybe God's holding out on you. And so Eve says in verse six, and it says Adam was with her, um, doing a great job leading, <laughs> as most guys do. Um, verse six, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, notice what happens, she sees it. She says, when, it saw that, when she saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she bought the lie. This tree possesses something for me that, I don't, that God is holding me back from. God is holding out on me. So she took it and she ate it and she gave, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I just, that part always cracks me up because I'm certain Adam had already planned to eat it. He was just waiting for someone else to be weak first, right? Like Jen and I will do these uh, cleanses and, um, I'm always just begging her to, to give in because I'll give in, but I just don't want to be the, I don't want to be the weak link. And so Adam was like praying for an opportunity for her to eat so he could finally taste it. Then verse seven says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. <clears throat> so they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. You begin to see the progression. God creates its good through man. Everything is just now beginning to crumble. When they ate it, they became aware of two things, really three things that prior to this they had not known. Number one was nakedness and number two was shame. And then God comes looking for Adam. And what we understand of, of their, the existence prior to the fall is that God walked with Adam. And so a common occurrence, God's showing up and saying, Adam, 
Let's go for a walk. Let's talk. Let's connect. Something that they had done every single day of their lives, all of a sudden, they hear the voice of God and they become afraid of it. A voice that was comforting. A voice that they had had experienced communion with. And because of their choice, because of their decision, they're naked, they're ashamed, and they become fearful of the voice that had always been comforting and drawing to them, being the voice of God. And you see in that moment everything beginning to crumble. She saw the fruit as pleasing, as desirable. What happened with Adam and Eve is, is they saw the gratification, but they failed to see the consequences. You know, we, we look back and we look at this story and we look at this story as something that happened. And I think this story is something that happens every single day. How many times are we placed in that exact same position where we fail to see consequences because we're too consumed with gratification? I want what I want and I want it now. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are. That relationship that you have with someone that is not your spouse, God has given you a wife or a husband. But they're not meeting whatever needs you think that need to be met, but there's somebody else in your life that is. And so we sit back and, and we toy with sin. And we say, well, we're, it's just a flirtatious relationship. It makes me feel good, but nothing is happening. And you're standing there in front of the tree confronted with gratification, but you know what the consequences of that choice that you're about to make are. The financial decisions that we make, the, the foolish ways that, that we spend money and the debt that we're heaping on ourselves. And we know where that road is leading, but it's driven by greed. And we convince ourselves of things that just aren't true. Satan told them, God doesn't want you to know what he knows. The fruit never had anything to do with them knowing what God knows. It was never even about that. But we believe lies. I wonder if they, if they looked and, and thought, you know, because the Bible says they couldn't eat it, but there's nowhere in the Bible that it says they still weren't responsible for tending it. And I wonder if they began to, to feed themselves thoughts like, oh, I deserve it. I'm the one doing all the work. I got to take care of it. Why can't I consume the produce of it? It just seems to make sense if I'm doing all the work that I deserve this. And how many times do we feed ourselves lives just like that? I deserve this. I deserve to be happy. The biggest lie we'll ever tell ourselves is that we deserve to be happy. Because it causes us to justify decisions that we should not make and to, and to choose things that are destructive for us. And so we see the progression happening. God creates man's sins and everything begins to crumble. They're thrown from the garden. And as everything is, is, is crumbling around them and is crumbling around us when we choose sin and we begin and we, and we are confronted with the consequences of the choices that we make. For Adam and Eve, it was excuses. Adam blamed the woman the woman blamed the serpent. The only one who took personal responsibility was Satan. He couldn't have been happier. But we want to make excuses. We want to blame somebody else for the mistakes, the choices that we made. Nobody made me go down that road. I chose to go down that road. And when confronted with the consequences, we buckle. 
We say things like, if, if I could go back and do it all over again. I didn't know that this was going to happen. I didn't know that I was going to wind up here. And it's in, it's in those moments that we find ourselves sitting in front of a, a group of high school students telling our story, saying, don't do what I did because this is what's going to happen. And yet we sat in those same circles listening to other people tell their story, and yet we thought we could do it differently. We thought we could get away with it. We believed a lie. We saw gratification and overlooked the consequences. And the decision affected them. They're thrown from, from the garden. And it affected their children, their, their sons. In Genesis 4, as you move through, through your chapter, you'll see Genesis 4. Cain and Abel appear before God, and they, and they offer sacrifices to him. And, and Cain's is refused, and Abel's is accepted. Now, this is one of those moments where I really connect with God. God liked Abel's because it was meat, and he didn't like Cain's because it was vegetables, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm on board. Um, what, whatever gave Cain the idea that, like, God was into vegan stuff. So I don't know. So, but anyways, he thinks God wants vegetables. And so, but, but God, wants, God wants a sacrifice, and he told them a sacrifice that, that involved a blood sacrifice. And so Cain brings him this offering, and God says, this isn't acceptable to me. And Cain leaves, and he's, he's angry, and God pursues him. I'm paraphrasing. That's not how your NIV is going to read. Uh, God pursues him and, and says, what's, what's the problem? Just fix it. Offer a sacrifice to me that is pleasing and, and, and everything will be fine. But instead of fixing it, Cain goes out and murders his brother Abel. Don't you think when Adam and Eve got word that their son Cain had murdered their son Abel, that they weren't right back there in front of that tree and their minds all over again. Thinking, man, now I see the consequences. Gratification is long gone. And now we're living the reality. Maybe God knew what he was talking about when he said, don't do this. Maybe it wasn't anything he was afraid of that could happen to him but he knew the consequences of what, it would of what it would have on us. And their choices affected others. And then uh, as, as you go through the chapter, you'll see the, the, um, the sin and the darkness got worse. It got progressively darker on the earth. In Genesis 6, verse number 5, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. You don't even know or understand. You can't comprehend how evil and wicked your hearts are. And this is what God said about man prior to the flood. If you go look at in chapter 8, God still says the same thing about man. He just says, I'm not going to destroy him anymore. It says in verse, it goes on, it says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his, his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. Again, without man, there's no reason for animals, birds, and creatures to exist. For I regret that I have made them. God is in this, this heartbroken moment, this heartbroken season as he looks at what he's created and he's sorrowful. He created and it was good. And yet it was us that chose sin. 
and caused everything to crumble. He created us to love. He created us to love and need him so that together we could experience community in a way that every one of us was created for and longs for, but seldom if ever truly experience. And God said, that is what I created. And this is what we have, this is what you have made. This is what we've done with that creation. But God always gives hope. This morning, I don't know where uh, you feel hopeless, but God always gives hope. In the deepest, darkest hours of sin, hope was shining through. When you look at the, the, the story of, uh, of Adam and Eve, you see God giving, giving hope. You see, for us, we see the word hope as it's kind of like wishful. I, I hope I get a raise. I hope shoes go on sale. Um, I've never wasted a wish on shoes, by the way. That's for you ladies. Um, I want to make sure you're tracking. Um, I save my wishes on more spiritual things like baseball teams. Um, but I, but I, hope, I hope this happens. But the word hope actually is a word of assurance. It's an anchor. It's something that you can cling to. In Psalm 130, verse 7, it says, Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is, is full redemption. And so you see hope shining through. Adam and Eve are, are standing there in front, of, in front of God. Their sin is exposed. And God says to God, uh, God has orders to the man. He says, because of you, this is going to happen to the woman. Ladies, those of you that have had children and have experienced excruciating pain, you can thank Eve for that one. God says, because of you, it's going to be painful to have children. And then he gets to the serpent. And in his, his talk to the serpent, to Satan, we see hope. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That, that phrase, strike his heel, is a reference to the wound that would be given to Jesus when he died on the cross. It was a dark, painful season for God the Father, for Jesus the Son, as he hung there on the cross. And as he was hanging there on the cross, it says that God the Father had to turn his back away from him. The only time in history God the Father ever turned his face away from his son was when he hung on the cross, having become sin for us. And so he says that will be a wound, but it's a wound that won't even begin to compare Satan to the wound that you will get. And that's the, the statement there, he will crush your head. As we see a picture of the gospel as Jesus defeats sin, death, hell, and Satan when he rises from the dead, the gospel for us is defined as Jesus living a sinless life, trading his righteousness for our sin. Righteousness is that right standing in the eyes of God. The, the Bible says that his righteousness is imputed to us. And what that means is that when God looks at me, not only does he see what Jesus has done, he sees that righteousness that Jesus had, but he sees it as if, as if it's my very own righteousness. He says, Satan, you... You, you have dealt a blow to humanity. You will wound my son, but he will crush your head and he will destroy you once and for all. When he rose from the, from the dead three days later to declare victory over sin and death. See, when, when Adam and Eve were, were caught in the garden, here's my if I were God thing again. If I were God, I'd be like, it's only two people. Let's get them out of here and start over. I mean, it, honestly, it would have been easy. Um, like, boom, let there be light. Boom, let there be no more people. Like, it would have been really easy. But God created them 
because he loved them. Because he loved them, he said, I'm, I'm not starting over. I don't want to start over with something new. I want to finish what's broken with this right here. And he gives hope. Hope always springs out of darkness. In fact, when it's the darkest is when hope is the most visible. You jump back ahead to the story of, of, uh, of Noah, Genesis chapter 6. Things are bad. God's like, I'm done. I, I repent that I ever created them. I'm wiping them off the face of the earth. Genesis 6 verse 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know what happened when Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord? Every single one of us found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Because it was from Noah that we have descended. And again, God said, no. I love them too much to, to, to say I'm done. They can never get to me, but I will give them hope and I will, and I will go and get them. Genesis uh, six, go, 6 and 7 goes on and tells the story of Noah building the ark, bringing the animals on, 40 days and, and 40 nights it rains. And then for several months, they're just sort of floating around. And I got I to gotta think, like a lot of times we dehumanize these stories in the scripture. But several months goes by and Noah hasn't heard anything from God. I got to think he began to, to, to question whether or not God was really there after all. You ever been there? You ever been in a situation where you thought, like, where is God? Like, if, if, if you loved me, then why aren't you here in my moment of need in this, this dark hour? In Genesis chapter 8, it opens up with some of my favorite words, most comforting words in the entire Bible. It says, but God remembered Noah. In fact, God never forgot him. You know, I know there's some, someone in here this morning. You just need to hear those words spoken over whatever it is that you're going through right now, that God hasn't forgotten you. That God isn't, 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 uh, isn't distant from you. He hasn't forgotten about what you're going through. He says, I'm sovereign. I'm in control. I love you. And you need to know this morning that God remembers you, that God is giving you hope. He knew Noah and his family were in a storm, that the entire earth was destroyed, and that they were reeling from the, from the reality of that. But God was giving hope. It says God, that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. It says that God remembered Noah. God was bringing hope, and today I want you to know that God still is bringing hope. Jesus is the ultimate hope. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. We've all stood in front of the tree and we've all chosen self. And God is giving you hope today that if you will repent, he'll forgive you. There's hope today that he is in control, that he is bigger than whatever it is that you're, that you're going through. Some of you here are, are struggling because you are, the, you are reaping the consequences of somebody else's choice somebody else's sin and, and, and you're sitting there and you're, you're, you're under the weight of it and, and, and you're thinking, man, God, why, why am I going through this? Why am, I, why am I forced to deal with this? Why am I forced to carry this? It wasn't even my sin that got me here. And you look in the scripture of people, of sons, Abel, 
was carrying the weight of the sin of his parents, of the sin of his brother. You need to know this morning that God is bigger than any situation, whatever you're going through. That he has a plan for your life. And that will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You know, God brings hope. He brings hope, hope to broken marriages, to your wandering children, to your financial crisis, maybe even to your weakening, <clears throat> weakening faith. He brings hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that hope hope that's found in Jesus. Romans, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Thank you that no matter how dark things may get, you give us hope. You shine a light into our darkness. If you're here this morning and we're starting this journey, we're talking about the God of the universe that created you and loved you. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you're standing there, you're standing there confronted with choosing sin or and self or choosing surrender. The Bible says in Romans 5:8 that God commended, displayed, showed his love to us, and that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. If you'd like to begin a relationship with God, a God that loves you, the Bible says we, we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouth that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for our sins. And if you'll do that this morning, if you'll pray that this morning, he'll come into your life. The presence of the Holy Spirit will come into your life. And if you want to begin that relationship, I want you to pray a prayer like this. It's not, it's not the words, it's the, the intent of your heart. So pray something like this. Dear Lord, I know that you created me. I know that because of my sin, everything is crumbled. But today I cling to that hope in the form of a loving Savior who lived a sinless life took my sin and paid that debt rose again to declare victory I give you my life if you prayed that this morning I want you to know he was listening and heaven is celebrating and we say to you welcome to God's family for those of us that are followers we constantly wrestle with life the way things were in, in chapter one. I just want to pray a prayer over us. Father, thank you for all that you created. I'm sorry for the way we abuse it, we mistreat it, and we trample it. Even your grace and mercy. Point to us the areas of our life that are unrepentant, places in our hearts that need to change to be more conformed to the image of your son, Jesus.